0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. Hello again, New Hope. Thank you, Emily, for reading those words from the letter to Titus to us. Last week, we started a a series in this letter to Titus. And one of the things we saw last week is that a key message of this letter is that truth leads to godliness. In other words, this letter teaches us that believing in the truth of the gospel leads to a certain kind of life, a life that contrasts in many ways with what our culture might call the good life or the best way to live. We saw last week that the gospel is designed to lead us into a kind of living that looks like Jesus. I would would, uh, suggest to you that that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says that truth leads to godliness, that godliness is Jesusness. It is Jesus like living. We saw last week that godliness doesn't just mean religiosity, properness. No, it goes deeper than that. Godliness describes those certainly who seek to keep their hands clean from sin, but it also describes those who are willing to get their hands dirty and also to serve others and to care for others in their suffering and in their sin. Once again, godliness means looking like Jesus, his character, his priorities. It's a high calling, isn't it, New Hope? It's a super high calling. The author of this letter knows that there is often a, a discrepancy, a, a misalignment between what we believe or what we say we believe and how we live. The author realizes that many of us can believe the truth or say we believe the truth and yet we don't live lives that look like Jesus' life. The author wants to close that gap between, uh, realign and, and fix that discrepancy between what we say we believe and how we live. So this letter, what it does is it calls us to reconsider our lives, to look closely at the way that we're living, to look closely at our priorities, to look closely at our goals, to look closely at our practices and the rhythms of our life from week to week. Look closely at them so that we can realign them with the truth that we claim to believe in the gospel. And we need to do this with regularity because we are all prone to drift from what we know is true. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to his partner and his protege named Titus, who he had left in Crete to care for a network of churches that they had planted together. Crete is a beautiful island in the Mediterranean. Many of the folks who lived on Crete in Paul's day and in Titus's day believed in a particular set of gods, little g gods. They believed in Greek gods, the Greek gods that many of us studied in school when we were maybe in elementary school or middle school or maybe even high school. They worshipped gods like Zeus. In fact, Cretans, as I said last week, claimed that Zeus was, was born on their island. They worshiped him, and as is often the case, what you worship and what you serve shapes the way your life looked. And a lot of the people who lived on Crete looked a lot like Zeus. Zeus was known for being a liar, a cheat, a womanizer, an immoral god, if that makes any sense. And Cretan culture was notorious for looking a lot like Zeus. It had been shaped by the center of their worship. In fact, as I shared last week, this one old Greek word for liar was "kretizo," "kretizo," which means to be Cretan. To be Cretan was synonymous with being a liar. Well, sadly, the culture of Crete was even seeping into the life of the local churches there on that island. Many followers of Jesus were drifting away from godliness, Jesus-like living, into Cretan-like living, Zeus-like living, and that's why Paul writes this letter to them to address those troubles. That led us uh, last week to ask a few questions, if you remember, if you were here last week. We asked ourselves, if, if the people in Crete were so powerfully impacted by their culture and were drifting away from godliness because of the influence of their culture, then maybe we should ask ourselves, is this happening in our own lives? What's our relationship to, our, to the cultures around us? Does my life, do my values, my goals, what I'm chasing in life, what I'm working for in life, does it line up with what I claim to believe about who God is and what he's done in Christ? Or does it line up more with the messages of the culture around me? We ask the question, what is it that that our culture seems to value? And I know that we don't all live in in one homogenous culture. Maybe there are different cultures around this area. Maybe there's one culture in the place where you go to work and you go to school and there are certain things that are valued and chased and really rewarded in that environment. But other things that are chased and, and valued in your family. But I think we need to ask the question, What is valued? What is rewarded in our cultures? And and how am I being shaped by that? Is the culture influencing me more than the gospel? These are difficult questions to answer. But we're going to have some time to answer them because we're going to be in Titus for a few weeks and we're going to be revisiting those questions as they guide us through this letter. So today we come to Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9 where the Apostle Paul tells Titus why he left him in Crete. He said, I left you behind in Crete to do two things. Put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town. Put what that's in, chapter, that's in verse 5. Put what remained in order. That means set straight what was messy and crooked. He left Titus behind to deal with the mess of that church or those churches. That word for set things in order, it's the same root word from, what, from which we get words like orthodontist. And orthopedists, those those doctors that put things, set things straight when they're broken and crooked and messed up. That's what Titus was called to do in those churches. And he was also left behind to appoint elders in every town. From what we can understand, on that island of Crete there were various churches. There are probably small churches that met in people's homes in different towns throughout the island. And Paul left Titus there to appoint elders. Or he also uses the word overseers. We're going to look at both those words in this passage. Elders and overseers. It's the same thing. Just two slightly different words for the same office. Elders and overseers were put in place to lead churches. Elsewhere, the Bible sometimes calls them pastors. In 1 Peter 5, too, we're told that elders or overseers, their job is to pastor or to shepherd the church. So when we read our Bibles, if we see pastor or shepherd or elder or overseer within the context of describing a local church, we should say, oh, that's the same office, the same thing, just highlighting different aspects of that job. So elders and overseers were tasked with shepherding the church, and they were to shepherd the church in a couple of ways, by teaching, by praying, and by setting an example. Teaching, praying, and setting an example. We have five elders or pastors, or shepherds, or overseers here at New Hope Fellowship. And it seems pretty clear from the scriptures that God has always designed the local church to be led by teams of elders, not just one elder, one pastor, kind of calls all the shots, gets what he wants done. No, teams that work together. And that's what Titus was tasked with appointing in Crete. And so very early in this letter, Paul does this. He starts talking about What elders or overseers or pastors should look like? What characteristics they should be marked by? And that tells us at least three things. We just got to look at this quick before we move on. This tells us three things. If, If the Apostle Paul said, here's what I want elders to look like, Titus, appoint elders that look like this. It means these three things. One, there were still people that looked like that in the church. There were still some godly people in the church. In spite of the influence of the culture, there were some, or at least Paul expected there to be some, who were still being shaped more by the gospel than by the culture around them. There were some people in the church who still looked Jesus-y. They're imperfect, but they were intentional about trying to align their lives and align their their character and their conduct with Christ. The other thing this tells us is that the church is meant to be led by Jesus-like people. Not perfect people, because if God wanted perfect people to run this church, we would be without leaders. But the church is meant to be led by Jesus-like people. In other words, the character of the leaders in the church really, really matters. Character really, really matters. We've seen, and we saw this last week, that the churches in Crete were, were kind of a mess, I heard one pastor named Alistair Begg recently say, most unsolved problems in a local church can be traced to defective leadership, almost without exception. It's hard for me to swallow, but I think he's right. Most unsolved problems in a local church can be traced to defective leadership, almost without exception. And so because there's messiness and there's lots of unsolved problems in that church, the Apostle Paul starts with, let's put leaders in place who look like Jesus. This is a wise starting point for addressing the needs and the problems and the sins of those churches, was to address the leadership. It makes sense, no? I mean, in a given household, if there are problems in the household, it makes sense to address the leadership in that household first before we start talking to the, the youngest in the household. If there are problems in an organization of any sort, in a corporation, it makes sense to Look closely at the leadership and see if they're doing what they're meant to be doing and if they are the kinds of leaders they're meant to be rather than looking at the lower level employees who just started. So today we're going to look at the characteristics that Paul lists and we're going to see how they align with the gospel. But again, before that, two more things, before that, two more things. One as we look through this, two things to keep in mind as you read through this list of characteristics. First one is this: I want you to notice the order, the 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 order, ordinariness. Why am I having so much trouble saying that word? The ordinariness of the list. There's very little remarkable about this list of characteristics. It's all quite ordinary. When the Apostle Paul says, here's the kind of elders that should lead the church, he doesn't say they should be visionaries. He should, doesn't say they should be dynamic communicators. They should be generational talents. No, what he, what he calls for is much more ordinary. In fact, as you read through this list in just a moment, I want you to ask yourself, if there, is there anything in this list of characteristics, qualifications for an elder that you think shouldn't mark every follower of Jesus? Is there any qualification here that you think shouldn't mark every Christian? Because as I look at the list, the only two I can think of are these. They're in verse nine and in verse six. Verse nine says an elder should be able to give instruction and sound doctrine. That means he should be able to teach. Maybe that's quite, well, maybe not every Christian needs to be able to teach or preach. But we'll look more closely at that, and we'll ask if even that maybe applies to all Christians, too, in one way. And then verse 6 says that every elder should be a husband of one woman, which would would seem to indicate that that elder should be a man. The Bible shows us that men and women are 100% equal in worth and value in God's sight. The Bible gives us no reason to think that one sex is more competent or more able to lead than another. But the office of elder, nevertheless, is reserved for men. And that's clear from passages such as this. Much in the same way that in the Old Testament, the office of priest was reserved for men. Have you ever noticed that? There are other offices we see in the Old Testament, prophets and judges. And we see women judges. We see women prophets in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we also see women prophets and evangelists and deacons, you name it, filling various, various different roles. But in the same way that those Old Testament priests were meant to be men, it seems that there's a parallel in the New Testament when we come to the office of elder. They're called to be men as well. It shouldn't surprise us that there are some offices or some roles that are gendered. Um, think about the fact that a mother is called to be a woman and a father is called to be a man. My father is a great parent, but he would not be a very good mother nor would my mother be a very good father. Those roles are gendered, and it seems that elders are likewise meant to be men, just like priests in the Old Testament. So, able to teach and and male, those two seem to be the only two characteristics here that would not apply to all believers. All the rest of the characteristics here, I think you could say, every Christian should look like that. Every Christian, every leader certainly, including every discipleship group leader, every uh, care group leader, every uh, uh, care group member and discipleship group member, every Sunday school teacher, every ministry leader, every worship team member, every church member. I believe, and I think you'll agree with me as you read through this list, should be marked by the same characteristics that, t- that Paul lays out for elders. In other words, and I've put this on a slide, I think, Only people who fit this description should be appointed as elders. But elders aren't the only people who should fit this description. All Christians should fit this description. The fact that you're in a position of leadership, if you are in a position of leadership, and you're instructing others, you're influencing others, that just makes it all the more important that you bear these these characteristics. So the reason I I point that out is because I'm hoping that we can look at this description of elders not just as a measuring stick to evaluate pastors, elders, overseers. It is that, and it should be used that way, as a measuring stick to evaluate me and the other elders. There's no doubt. And I want to submit to that. For those who are elders here, we, we, we need to submit to that. We need to take these qualifications very seriously These are searching words and they're convicting words for us. I know my elder brothers would would agree. But if you're not an elder, let these words search you as well. Again, they can be used by God to help you ask some questions. How is the gospel impacting my life? Is it shaping me more than my culture is? Am I growing in and striving for godliness, for the character and the life of Jesus? So Note the ordinariness of the list. And the other thing I was going to say as well before we look at the list is notice the four C's in this list. The four C's character, conduct, conviction, and competence. Character meaning who you are, conduct meaning how you live and act, conviction meaning what do you believe, and competence meaning can you do the job. But as you look through the list, I want to ask you, where do you see it weighted? Is this list of qualifications weighted towards competence on the one end, or is it weighted towards character? I think you're going to see that it's heavily weighted towards character and conduct. When the Apostle Paul lays out what Christians should look like or what leaders in the church should look like, he seems to focus a lot more on who they are and and how they live, even more, much more than he does on how well they can do the job. Perhaps it's because how well they can do the job depends so heavily on their character. In any case, we tend to focus on competence when it comes to fulfilling jobs, don't we? If you're gonna hire someone, you wanna know, can they do the job, can they do it with excellence? If you're getting on an airplane, you don't care if your airline pilot pilot is an adulterer, do you? Do you ever ask that question? Is Is my pilot a moral person? You don't care if your mechanic is addicted to pornography, do you? Unless you know him or her personally. Although I'd say that even in those cases, uh, character matters in some way, and we could probably tease out how character does matter. But you're not as concerned about character in those areas, perhaps. But how much more should we be concerned when it comes to leadership in the local church? So note the ordinariness of the list. Note the four C's, character, conduct, conviction, and competence as we go through this list. So now, let's quickly go through the list. And let's see how these qualifications, all these characteristics, they align with the gospel. And they're an outworking of belief in the gospel. So, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, An elder must be, he describes elders this way, anyone who is above reproach. Above reproach. Some Bibles translate it as blameless. Uh, And then later in verse 7, it says it again, an overseer must be blameless or an overseer must be above reproach. This does not mean, of course, the candidates for eldership must be flawless or faultless. Again, we'd all be disqualified. The Greek word here is not the word for unblemished, but it's the word for without blame, unaccused. You see, What's being described here is a character that cannot be uh, impeached, is irreproachable. Someone about whom you could say, I know nothing, I have no accusations to make regarding immorality, unrighteousness in the life of this person. There are no outstanding scandals and sins that are not being addressed and repented of. I know nothing that I can blame this person about. That's what that means. And of course, it speaks to character, irreproachable character. It's necessary for anyone who's going to lead in the local church. And certainly it's something that we should all strive for, isn't it? This may explain why Paul didn't appoint elders when he was still in Crete. He planted the churches there. He left Titus behind. And perhaps part of the reason he left him behind is because it takes time to discern whether someone is above reproach. It takes time of living together to discern whether someone is living a blameless life. That's why 1 Timothy 3.6 says that an elder must not be a recent convert. It takes time to mature, to grow, because if he's a recent convert, he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't be quick to put someone in a role of leadership. Take your time. Take your time. Now, the Apostle Paul goes on to show that, that, that this, this irreproachability, this blamelessness needs to be uh, seen and evident in an elder's family life. So verse 6, he says, an elder must be the husband of one wife. Literally, that means a one-woman man. The elder must be a one-woman man. It doesn't mean that he has to be married. The Apostle Paul who wrote this was likely not married, but he must be faithful, not an adulterer, certainly not a polygamist, which may have been common at the time, but also beyond just not being a polygamist, that's a very, that's a very low bar, isn't it? He must be faithful, uh, not a man whose eyes are wandering, who's looking for uh, extramarital relationships or even prone to extramarital relationships. How many ministries and how many churches have been wrecked by pastors were unfaithful to their wives. I know of way too many. Verse 6 goes on to say that his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination. The, the The most literal way that I could see to translate those words would be his children are faithful. His children are faithful. And then it goes on to say that they are not open to the charge of debauchery or of insubordination, meaning they're not wild or disobedient or incorrigible. The test suggests, and most scholars agree at this, that Paul has childhood in mind. When he's talking about children here, especially in that culture, he's talking about actual children, like small kids. Not adult children, perhaps not even adolescent kids. The term child usually refers to youngsters who are young minors, and, and, and therefore they're they're regarded as still being under the, the, the authority of their parents. And those children, if, if, if one is going to be an elder, then their children must be uh, regarded as obedient, as, as willingly, willing, uh, willingly submissive to the, to the leadership of their parents, uh, submitting to the parents' authority. It doesn't necessarily mean that every elder must have children, both young and old, who are all Followers of Christ. After all, one can't control whether or not, while we have influence, we can't control whether our children will ultimately believe in Christ. And yet, the lifestyle of our kids is, is a reflection in some way on the culture of our household and our own leadership as parents. First Timothy 3, 4, 5 says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You see the rationale there. If we can't manage our household, how are we going to manage the church? And so the elder is required to exhibit blamelessness at home, but also blamelessness in his personal life. Look at verse 7. It says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, Upright, holy, disciplined. So so that the principle here is: first we said, if a person can't manage their own home, how are they going to manage the church? Here it's as if Paul's saying, if a person can't manage himself, how's he gonna manage the church? If you can't even disciple your own life yourself, how are you gonna disciple others? And so he gives us five negatives and six positives, five negatives, things not to be, not be arrogant. On the flip side, that would mean to be humble, right? Not be arrogant, not be quick tempered or a drunkard. Both of those have to do with self control, right? To not be quick tempered means that you're controlling your emotions. To not be a drunkard means you're controlling your desires. They're both about controlling impulses in some way, aren't they? He says, not violent, not combative. Timothy taught, says that, that in, there, there's and I've alluded to, to Timothy, 1 Timothy a few times, because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's a list very similar to the one that we're looking at at Titus. There, it's a little different, but it's very similar. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, uh, he, Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that elders are not to be quarrelers. That means it's not just that we're not supposed to be violent, like getting into fights on the street, but we're not meant to be picking arguments, combative, looking to Prove ourselves right, looking to put people down. That's behavior and character, unbecoming of an elder. He also says we're not to be greedy for gain. That has to do with money, of course, but it has to do with more than just money. We, how, can you, how can one, a leader, be greedy for gain? Sure, you can be greedy for a large income, or you can be greedy for status, greedy for power. Greedy for a platform, greedy for clout. Paul says none of that is becoming of an elder. And then he gives us six positives. Here are things that should mark an elder. He's to be hospitable, welcoming of others into his life and into his home, not showing favoritism, right? He's to be a lover of good. He's to be self-controlled. He's to be upright holy and disciplined and i believe that you can look at that list of six positives and see them also almost as like the flip side of the five negatives it's almost the other side and so because of time we're not going to look super carefully at each one they're pretty self explanatory the question i want to ask is what does all that have to do with the gospel how are these characteristics aligned with the gospel they need to be aligned with the gospel because what the apostle paul is not just saying that, that the church should be led by uh nice guys right good folks. No, it's meant to be led by people who have been impacted and changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because truth leads to godliness. And in order for us to see how these characteristics align with, with, with the gospel, I believe the best thing we can do is look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. This is a passage that we're going to actually look at more carefully in a few weeks, but we're just going to look at it briefly now. Look at what Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, <coughs> excuse me, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Let's stop there for just a moment. The grace of God has appeared. How has the grace of God appeared? It's appeared for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into this world and died in order to rescue a people for himself, in order to defeat sin. He rose again and he's promised to return one day to make all things new. That's how the grace of God has come to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying that when that grace comes to you, when you receive the gospel, you believe the gospel, that gospel teaches you, it trains you to live a certain way it trains you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age look at those look at those adjectives self-controlled upright godly sounds very much like the words that paul was using to describe elders So you see, when the grace of God appears, it doesn't just train elders to live that way. It teaches all of us who have received God's grace through the gospel to live this way. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The gospel is news. It is a message, but it's a message that comes with power, with the power of God's grace to transform us. Verse 13, it transforms us into people who are waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see what that means? The gospel changes us into people who aren't wrapped up in getting everything we can out of this life right now and chasing everything that this world tells us is valuable and important and worthy to live for, work for, and even die for. The gospel changes us into people who are looking for something beyond this world, who are waiting for our blessed hope, who know that our best life is not now. This is our worst life now. It may be great, it may be wonderful, and following Jesus is a blessed life to live, but this is our worst life, frankly, because it only gets better from here on out. When Christ returns, verse 14 says, He, Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see what the gospel does to us? The gospel tells us that Jesus gave himself for us, to save us from all lawlessness? How can we live in lawlessness if we know that Jesus died to free us from lawlessness? How can we continue in sin when we know that Jesus died to free us from sin? How can we continue to live in filth when we know that Jesus died to make us pure, a people for his own possession, We're zealous, for good works. Jesus died to make us a people who want to do good. Not just to be do gooders, but to be people who do actual good, who serve others in Jesus' name, who pursue justice in Jesus' name, who, do, who, who, who freely give mercy in Jesus' name, who love others in the name of our Savior. The grace of God in the gospel teaches us to live that way. Not only that, but when we receive that grace of God in the gospel, he gives us his spirit. His spirit lives in us, and his spirit transforms us into people who live that way. And so Paul, in a sense, is saying, every elder must give evidence that they have believed the gospel. And the way we're going to know if they believe the gospel is if they live this way. Because truth leads to godliness. Every elder needs to be a person who gives evidence of the fruit of the Spirit at work in their lives. It's convicting words because, I don't know about you, but I look at myself in light of this list and I see so many holes, I see shortcomings, I see failures. And maybe you do too if you've followed my advice and you've tried to evaluate your own life in light of this list so that I'm not the only one doing it. (laughs) Maybe you're seeing those gaps and those holes and those shortcomings. I want to encourage you. God is not done with me or with you. If you have believed the gospel and if you hear his word now calling you to pursue godliness, and don't ignore that. Don't be discouraged by your failures in the past. Instead, hear his call to godliness now. And ask him for the grace you need to realign your life with what you claim to believe. He's not done with you. And he will bring the work that he's begun in you to completion. In verse 9, the apostle moves on from family life and personal life, and he says that uh, the elder, verse 9, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, he's gone from character and conduct in verses six through eight. Now he's talking about conviction and competence. Conviction, what you believe, holding firm to the trustworthy word of the gospel, and competence, the ability to be able to teach that truth of the gospel and rebuke those who contradict it. The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word. Again, it's the word of the gospel itself. It's that great news of God's plan to redeem this broken, sin-cursed world, to rescue everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, who died and rose again, and he's coming back to make all things new. and He will reign over his renewed creation forever. To be a leader in Christ's church, you must believe and hold on to that word and all the necessary implications of that gospel. But again, I would ask, is that really any different than what's required of anyone who's a member of Christ's church to hold on to that gospel? But the leader must know it and hold on to it in order to be able to teach it and defend it. But again, it's less about teaching gifts here. It's, not, it's less about being a gifted teacher, and it's more about being a man who has willingness and preparedness to teach and defend the truth. It's less about being a great teacher and more about being a willing teacher who submits to the authority of God's word and believes it enough that he's willing to communicate it to others with conviction, with sincerity. I want to end with just a couple of words of application that I think come from this passage for us. The first one is this, prioritize character, conduct, and conviction. Prioritize character, conduct, and conviction. These need to be priorities for us as we evaluate elders and as we um, uh, elect future elders in this church, no doubt. But those have to be priorities for us in other areas of life too, don't they? Character, conduct, conviction. They must be priorities for us as we seek leaders of ministries, leaders of small groups, I would would, uh, suggest to you that they must be they must be prioritized in seeking a mate, a, a spouse. Think about marriage. So often I hear people talk about compatibility when it comes to marriage. That C didn't even make the list. C, compatibility didn't even make the list of the top four C's. Character, conduct, and conviction are much more important than compatibility, I'll tell you that. Or even perhaps think about leaders that we elect at the, at the local, national level, I'm never going to stand up here. If I ever do, you should kick me out of here. I'm never going to stand up here and tell you who you should vote for. I'll never do it. But I will say this because I believe God's word teaches us this, that perhaps leaders at every level, both in the church and in the world, should be judged in terms of their character and their conduct and their conviction. Prioritize these characteristics. Prioritize them for yourself as you seek to grow and as you seek to mature as a follower of Christ. As you seek to make your way in this world, prioritize your character, your conduct, and your convictions. Not all of those things are necessarily valued and rewarded in our culture, but God thinks very highly of them. And then the last thing I'll say as I end is this. As we look at Titus as a whole, we find that godliness, the kind of godliness described here, is nurtured, it's fostered within Christian community. Remember, the Apostle Paul and Titus planted churches in in Crete. Titus stayed behind to set up leaders in those churches. The belief must have been that the best way to foster godliness on that island for to be local communities of people with all their flaws and with all their sins together seeking to work out what does it look like for me to live a life that's aligned with the truth of the gospel. We don't learn to be like Jesus in isolation. On the contrary, in isolation, we drift from godliness. That goes for us as individuals, and I believe it even goes for us as households, we drift from godliness when we are isolated from our brothers and sisters. Perhaps you've seen some of this. When there have been seasons in your life because of some kind of necessity, you've been removed from community. Maybe it's because of illness. Maybe it was during the pandemic you found yourself isolated from community. Tell me honestly, evaluate your life over that season. Did you, did you recognize drift happening? Did you recognize yourself and your household growing more godly during that time? Or was it the opposite? Were you beginning to reflect more and more the values of the culture around you? We grow in godliness within the community of Christ's church. It's one of the reasons that Hebrews 3, chapter 3, verse 12, this isn't up there, but I'll read it to you, and you can look it up if you'd like. Hebrews 3, verse 12, says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away, to drift from the living God. But here's how we keep from drifting. Here's how we keep sin and what we're imbibing from the world from pulling us away from God. He says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's by speaking truth to one another exhorting one another, something that we get to do in our discipleship groups, we get to do in our care groups, we get to do it when we get together on Sundays, to exhort one another, even through the singing of hymns, even as we listen to the word being preached, to urge each other towards godliness and away from that that, that current of worldliness that pulls us so strongly. Ephesians 4 echoes the sentiment of Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3. It tells us that it's within the community of God's people as a church as we speak the truth, that truth that leads to godliness, Paul says, as we speak that truth to one another in love, within the context of that community, what happens is we all begin to grow together. The entire body begins to grow into maturity and become more Jesus-y, more Christ-like. So as I end, I'll just make one more plug for our discipleship groups. I don't think discipleship groups are a panacea. They're not, gonna, they're not the only place that we find community, but it is one place. And so if you're able, I would encourage you, even if you need to move things around and make sacrifices, to join a discipleship group as possible. But more than about being about discipleship groups, it's about being in community with other brothers and sisters who are going to urge you and pull you towards godliness. We need this. We need this. We fall out of alignment so quickly. We need God's word within the context of community to realign our wheels, so to speak, again and again, under the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which uh, reorients us. It convicts us, Lord. As we look at this list of qualifications, Lord, we're overwhelmed by, by, by the beauty of what you desire for us, but we're also faced with our own weakness and, our, and our, our shortcomings. Lord, continue to mold us into the people you desire us to be. Grant us quick and constant repentance And help us to live lives that align with the truth that you've given us in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.